Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for giving us the gift of love. Now, Lord, I pray that uh, you would send your Holy Spirit, that he would fall on us this morning to do the special work of illumination and change in our hearts. These things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Redemption Tempe. Oh, let's do better than that. Good, good morning, Redemption Tempe. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to have hopefully another exciting time in the Word of God this morning. Um, I have a little story I'll start off with. A group of first graders had just completed a tour of a hospital, and the nurse who had directed them was asking some questions. And immediately a hand went up. How come the people who work here are always washing their hands? A little fellow had just asked the teacher. And after the laughter had subsided, the nurse gave a very wise answer. They are always washing their hands for two reasons. First, they love health. And second, they hate germs. Sometimes it's easy to define love when we understand hate. They love health, and how you know they, help, they love health is they're always washing their hands. How do you know that God's people love Jesus? Because they love each other. The mark of the world is hatred, but the mark of the church is love. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Are you with me? All right. Well, in our text, John, the apostle, had seen the love of Christ demonstrated the night of the upper room. When Jesus took the basin of water, you remember, and washed the feet of the disciple. He then heard Jesus say, a new commandment I give you today, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, any good Bible student would know that this command to love, love our neighbor is very familiar in the biblical text in Old Testament and New Testament. But Jesus did something very different here. He added something. He says this, that you love your neighbor as I have loved you. It's not just love your neighbor now as yourself. They were familiar with that. Now there's a new standard because who Christ is and what he came to do. And he said that now is your new model for love. Are you with me? Are you with me? All right, I don't want to lose you this early. So now John saw this demonstration of Christ's love when he willingly went to the cross to die for our sins. And so the son of thunder 
became known at that point as the, the apostle of love. We love because of Jesus. Amen? We need to examine ourselves constantly because our default mode is to revert back to selfishness, not to love. In our text, John again gets out his black and white paint and does not mix them into shades of gray. He wants us to know. He wants us to expose the error of the heretics in the plainest terms. So he contrasts the world with the church. And his message is this. The mark of the world is hatred, but the mark of the church is love. Both of them are fruit. And we're going to dive in and expose what's being said here. You see, because this, this is a nice statement, but as you ponder it, as you think about it, you have to ask yourself, is that really true? I've known some wonderful, loving unbelievers, and I've also known some mean and petty believers. We've all met people who claim to be Christians, but do they look and act like Christians? Does that square with what John says about our actual experience? Hopefully that question is going to be answered as we walk through our text this morning. So we're going to start with this. The mark of the world is hatred. Now we're going to really break that down because sometimes to define somewhat vague ideas or notions like love, it's helpful to contrast it with the opposite, which is hatred. So John contrasts the love that we are to have for one another with Cain's murder of his brother Abel. We see that in verses 11 and 12. And then he states in verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised. Know this, the world hates you. Jesus here, John here, I'm sorry, reflects Jesus' words in the upper room. When he said that, he says this, if the world hates you, which it does, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So the world hates us, not because of you, but because of Jesus. You're clearly not of the world. You, you look different, you think different, you talk different. And because of that, the world hates you. Now, not to doubt Jesus' words, but rather to understand them, we have to ask, is this really true? Is it true? Like I said earlier, I've known people who profess Christianity and were quite mean. And I know some people who would say, no, nah, I wouldn't affirm that Jesus guy. And they're really nice people. So how is the world marked by hatred, especially in light of the nice people that we know? To answer this question, we need to define our terms. So by the world, what John means is the unbelieving world, which is under Satan's dominion and which is in opposition to God. 
But in particular, John was targeting those who had left the church and were promoting false teaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. In the doctrinal section that follows our text, he says that these false prophets have gone out into the world. Chapter 4, verse 1. They are the spirit of the Antichrist, which is already in the world. Chapter 4, verse 3. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Chapter 4, verse 5. Now, why does the, the world listen to them? Because they like them, they love them. They are part of the world. I remember... In 2016, when the COVID and the election and all that stuff was going on, and that was a very eye-opening time for me as it relates to the church. During that time, um, I lost a lot of friendships. I had a lot of discussions. Um, There was a lot of uh, hate and slander thrown at me because of the way I thought. Because I have to have a discussion with my son about how to behave if he's ever stopped by the police because I don't want him killed. And because of that, I was a member of Black Lives Matter. I remember people that sat in classes with me that were converted to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel that confronted me that I don't know the gospel. Like, what are you talking about? You heard the gospel the first time by me. It was just an amazing, hurtful time for me. Um, It took me a while to heal from that. People that I thought were my friends, that I thought were fellow workmen in this preaching ministry, people that I have grown up in the faith with, all of a sudden looked at me with disdain. This text was very helpful to me, but I hope it's as helpful to you. You see, when John speaks of love, he points us to the supreme example of Jesus laying down his life for us in Titus chapter 3, verse 16. So a helpful definition of biblical love is this. A self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. Let me say that again. A self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. It doesn't say anything in there about being right. Doesn't say anything in there about your political view. Doesn't say anything about how well or how you don't understand the gospel. It says we love seeking the highest good of the one loved. So if you're loved biblically by another person, they want the highest good for you. They want you to have a relationship with Jesus that's deep and nourishing. They want to have a relationship where you can be honest with one another. 
That's what love is. Jesus sacrificed himself because he cared for us and he is committed to seek our highest good, namely that ultimately we might share his glory. That one day, this should, this should make you or should fill you with joy that one day that I'm going to see Jesus and I'm going to be glorified with him. Some of you younger folks are like, ah, okay, that sounds good. You older folks are saying, that's a wonderful idea. I get, my biggest question is like, which body do I get? Do I get that 32-year-old body? I like that one. Or do I get the 60-year-old body with a little bit of aches and pains, but more knowledge? Right? Which one do I, do I get? And so that's what I think about. And so I'll have that discussion with God one day. <laughs> Since hatred is the opposite of love, we can define it as this. A selfish, insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding others good as I seek my own interest. Say it again. It is a selfish insensitive attitude that shows itself in disregarding others' good as I seek my own interests. So hatred is selfishness. Hatred is selfishness. And see, I, I, and I said this at the first service. It wasn't in my notes. It was on the fly. But um, first, if you ran into me prior to 1990, uh, please forgive me. Um, I probably did some things that were really ungodly, so I, I ask your forgiveness if anyone is in here or if anyone hears this message, this is the same will with a different heart. But the way that I was, how my, my self-centeredness showed itself was in niceness. See, we're not talking about being nice. See, because this is what I would do. If I knew you, if you needed some money, I could afford, I'd give it to you. If you needed a ride, I'd give it to you. But I didn't do it because you had need. I did it because I knew at some point I'm going to, I'm going to need something. And so I'm going to come to you. So I'm not, I'm not caring for you. I'm setting you up for a score. See, that's not love. And I think sometimes, because we don't understand it, a lot of that goes on in church. I do nice things for you because I heard you own a business. I do nice things for you because uh, I'm a guy and I'm looking for a girl and you seem like you're nice. I do nice things for you because it serves me, not Jesus. And sometimes it takes some work to be able to see when that is coming and is rising in your heart. The essence of hatred is the self-centered bent of fallen human nature. It tells you, I'll help you if it helps me or if it's not too much of a hassle. But if it comes down to you or me, I'm looking out for me. When we understand hatred like that, we can see that it's characterized by the unbelieving world. The world is motivated by self-interest. 
Something as simple as serving in church. Are you serving to glorify God? Are you serving because there's a need? Or are you serving because you think that that's something that you should do? Um, so I will serve, but let me look at my schedule. Uh, yes, I'm going to serve. I'm going to, I'm going to be an usher. I'm going to do this, but I can only do it mm, one Sunday every other month because I have stuff to do. It's not sacrificial. See? And that's why most churches have a struggle with people serving because they want to serve when it's convenient, not sacrificial. And I'm not reading anyone's mail here. I'm just making a point, right? That we sacrificially serve one another. We should feel it. It should hurt a little bit, right? It shouldn't just be out of total convenience. Amen? But you may be thinking, what about examples of genuine love on the part of unbelievers? It's a great question. Now, while it may be true that most unbelievers are motivated by selfishness, we often see examples of unbelievers who sacrifice themselves on behalf of others. We see unbelieving parents who give themselves selflessly on behalf of their children. We hear of those who donate kidneys so that a family member or even a perfect stranger might live. We hear of soldiers who willingly die to protect their comrades. Don't these examples, Will, contradict John's words about the world's hatred? That was you asking me that question while I was studying, by the way. I was just. I believe that such examples may be explained by the fact of God's common grace. This is what I'm talking about. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus said this, that the father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He said in Luke 6.35, he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Love is one of God's gifts. And he is not totally withdrawn that gift completely from unregenerate people. It should serve as a witness to them to point them to the source of love, which is Jesus. As John is going to point out for us in chapter four, verse seven, he says this small phrase, love is from God. That's where it comes from. But the fact that God has not completely withdrawn his grace from this rebellious world does not contradict John's generalization that the world is marked by hatred. The world is marked. But understand this, that the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be, here it is, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, there's some young people in here. So disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. This is the, the fruit or the working out in your heart of hatred. Hatred, John says, is typified in Adam's firstborn Cain. It says that in verse 12 of chapter 3. 
And this is the only explicit Old Testament reference in John's epistles and the only proper name except for references to Christ or God. I think that John chose Cain because he was the first person born on earth under the curse of sin. His hatred toward his brother typifies the self-centered evil bent of the fallen human heart. While our self-centeredness seldom goes to the extreme of murder, the roots are there. Hatred is rooted in the evil one. Hatred is rooted in Satan. In Hebrews 11.4 says that Abel offered a better sacrifice by faith. Since faith is always a response to God's revelation, hear me on this, we must assume that God had revealed to Cain and Abel the proper kind of sacrifice that he required. Abel obeyed, Cain in defiance disobeyed, and bought an acceptable offering, an unacceptable offering, I'm sorry. And when his brother's offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected, his envy began to boil. Even though God confronted Cain and exhorted him to repent, we see that in Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Cain ignored the warning. He couldn't stop. As a result, he slaughtered his brother. The Greek word here that is used means to slit the throat or to butcher. That's what it means. This is why it says that. God wants us to see Hatred, slander, murder, the same way he does. It is gruesome. We don't see it like that. I just get mad. It's not a big deal, right? I get angry. I might yell. I might shout. What our text is really trying to get us to understand is God abhors anger and hatred amongst his people. And he wants us to see it as he sees it. So what he does is an example. He gives us this gruesome murder that was very bloody. And he says, that's what I think of hatred. That's what I think of love. I mean, of, of, of being angry and evil and mean. John assumes the doctrine of original sin in, in verse 14 when he states that we have passed out of death into life. But the one who does not love abides in death. People do not begin as neutral, my friends, or basically good, and then decide either to choose or reject God. People are born into this world in a state of spiritual death. You know, people say, yeah, I, I have some issues, but God knows my heart. It's like, yeah, he does, but that's not anything to be confident in. Right? He knows how wicked and mean you are deep down inside. There are many things that you don't do, not because you love God, but you're afraid to go to jail, right? <laughs> that is the motivation. What he's trying to get us to understand is that, the need, that we need this new birth in order to pass out from death into life and that the only other time that phrase is used, I'm going to see this in John chapter 5, verse 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me 
has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So John begins with Adam's firstborn Cain, who typifies the hatred of the fallen human race. So this is what's going on. You have these false teachers who somehow were publicly sinning, where people can see it. It wasn't hidden. And they were, they were teaching against Christ. In the text, it says he, he, he talks, to, talks about how they are called the Antichrist. They were teaching against the teaching of Jesus as Messiah. They were living in a way that showed that they were not a teacher of God's word, that they were not Christians. The fruit of their life and their standing with God was evident. And so John is sitting there saying, look at their life. What they're saying cannot be true because of the way that they're treating you. It goes even deeper. Hatred originates with the devil. He's not saying, for some reason, they knew that these false teachers hated him. So John is telling them, he references a murder in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, and recalls Jesus' words where he states that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. So if we think that either hatred or love finds their roots in the human heart, we have not gone deep enough. Hatred finds its source in the devil, whereas love originates with God. So he's, he's getting them to challenge themselves. Where is your root? Is it rooted in the devil or is it rooted in God? Now, this isn't to blame the devil and absolve sinful people of their responsibility for their sin, but to harbor hatred is to oppose God. And put yourself in a league with the devil. Therefore, we need to be quick to judge our own hearts when we see these selfish attitudes rearing their ugly head. See, some of us here, you've said things like, I hate him. I just hate him so much. Or I hate her. I hate her hair. I hate her shoes. I hate everything. When I grew up, we used to say, because we, we were a little more hardcore, I hate his guts, right? I hate him down to his innards. It should never be of God's people to talk like that. There's a, an illustration that I like to use to connect this idea with, with, with our life, and that is, and there's a carpet here I can see, is, and that's this. If I shake this bottle, right, like this, I shake it, and what comes out of the bottle? Why does water come out of the bottle when I shake it? Because water is in the bottle, right? If I had milk in the bottle and I shake it, what's going to come out? Milk. If I have water, water's going to come out. Here's the point. 
that when you get angry and you respond in anger, it's because the anger is in your heart. And you just need an opportunity to expose what's already in your heart. So if there's anger in your heart, when you're shaken, what's going to come out of your heart? Anger. Why? Because anger is in your heart. If your heart is full of love, when you're shaken, what's going to come out? Love. That's what it means to be a Christian. You say, because of Jesus Christ and what he's done in my life, because he's taken my heart of stone and he's given me a heart of flesh. So when I'm shaken, I love. When I see a need, regardless of how I feel, because it will help another person, I love. Shake me and see what happens. Shake you and see what happens because God is in the business of shaking us up to see. Hatred divides people and may result in the taking of a life ultimately. At best, hatred becomes indifference or avoidance of another person, causing them to separate and distance in themselves in relationship. At worst, selfishness and hatred become murder. We see that in James chapter four, verses one and two. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew five, Jesus said that anger is tantamount to murder in God's sight. So for those of you who say, I'm not a murderer, I just have a problem with anger. No, you're a murderer. And you are plugged into all the things now that the Bible says about murderers. While we cringe when we hear someone murdering someone else or we often tolerate the roots of sin by excusing it in our own lives, we need to see our own selfish anger as hideous, as awful, as displeasing and root it out of our lives. Amen? Amen. Thus, hatred is typified in Adam's firstborn Cain. It originated with the devil it divides people and may result in murder. It is motivated by personal sin or rebellion against God. That's hatred. Now, the mark of the church is love. John draws a sharp contrast between the hatred that marks the world and the love that marks the church, whereas hatred is typified in Adam's firstborn. Love is typified in God's firstborn. In verse 16, literally reads, by this we have experientially come to know love that the one that one laid down his life for us. That one is Jesus. The cross is the supreme demonstration of what real love, God's love, is. There's hardly a passage in the New Testament that speaks of God's love that does not also speak of the cross. The most familiar, of course, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you want to know what God's love looks like, it looks like Jesus, the righteous one who willingly sacrificed himself 
on behalf of the ungodly. Whereas hatred originates with the devil. Now, going deeper into this love, can I go a little bit deeper? Now, I won't go if you don't want to go there with me, but can I go deeper? All right. We, we know the words for love in the Bible, right? We know agape, phileo, and eros. We understand them. They are present in this earth right now. What happens when we're saved, the Bible tells us that we love, right? Whether it's agape, phileo, or eros, we love because God first loved us, right? So this is what happens. Agape love, which is this family love that we have with one another, right? We have that you can have family love and be an unbeliever. What happens is the love of God comes, invades our heart, and it actually now infuses agape love with the love of God so it looks different in the life of a believer. That now I can love you not based on who you are or what you do or whether I like you or not. I'm going to love you because you need love. Phileo love, that, that brotherly love. We can have brotherly love. I have a best friend that I've had for 40 years. But when I got saved and the love of God infused that phileo love, now I can have a loving relationship with another man and you can have a relationship with another woman and, in, and without same-sex attraction. Why? Because now the love of God has entered into that relationship. So men and women can be friends. Women and women can be friends. Men to men can be friends in a way that brings honor and glory to God. Eros love. People are loving their wives all over the place. But when the love of God comes and invades that Eros love that I have for my wife, now not only do I love her, but God can use me in the sanctification process. And the things that she does, I forgive her for. The things that, that we may butt heads on, we work through, not because I deserve it or she deserves it, but it brings glory to God. He changes love. It's not just we love God because he first loved. He actually changes the definition of love by changing your heart. Love unites people and results in the laying down of our lives for others. Jesus showed his love by laying down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It says in verse 16, that's a hard saying. See, to be honest, would you really lay down your life for people in this room? You can say it, but would you really do it? If something happened and we had to run out of here all at once, there would be a lot of trampled women and children, right? Because there's just this thing about us when we panic our knee-jerk reaction is self-preservation. It shouldn't be amongst believers. It should not be. But we can say whatever we want, right? I can say, oh, I love Jesus. I can say that I would die for you. Why? Because it's easy to say. There's a story um, where Jesus healed a, a lame man at a pool. And he was going back and forth with the Pharisees. And he told them, he said, what's easier to say? 
take up your mat and walk or your sins are forgiven? What's easier to say? Well, he goes on in a text to say it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's invisible. You can't see sins being forgiven. So it's easy to say. But then he says, so you will know that the son of man has the power to forgive sins. Take up your mat and walk. See, there's a difference in things that are easy to say and things that are easy to see. And we have to be better at loving each other in a way that people can see so it's just not lip service. Amen? John doesn't leave us to sit around speculating what we might do if persecution hits. He brings it down to everyday living. In verse 17, he says, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's easy to say that you would lay down your life for your brethren. But if you aren't doing it inch by inch in the little details of setting aside your selfishness to serve others, beginning at home, it's empty talk to say, I die for my brothers in Christ. Self-sacrifice is never convenient. It's always more of a hassle to meet someone's needs than to ignore them. God wants us to, be to, a, to, to come to a place where we love others based on the love that we've received. Love unites people through practical deeds of self-service. I can tell you that the church has helped me over my journey um, of being a believer. They've helped me spiritually when I was down. They've helped me financially. They've helped me personally with friendships. The church has always been there loving me. But I want to say this. Don't you want to be in a community like that? Right? We think of, well, how am I going to do this? And how am I going to do that? And what does that look like? And how much money should I give if someone's already? Well, instead, think about this, that God has blessed you so much that he's placed you in a community where he's changed the hearts of the people to where now love is an identifier of who they are. And he loved you enough to place you in, in, a, in a situation like that. So instead of thinking, how am I going to do something? I can now praise God for what he's already done. And I can now be a, con a conduit to love each and every one of you when need comes up. Love is motivated, motivated by God's love in Christ. That's really the point of verse 16. If God's love as shown on the cross abides in your heart, it will flow through you to others. If you're running short on love, stop and meditate on what Jesus did for you. Don't meditate on the other person. Meditate on what he's done for you. If the servant who had been forgiven the huge debt had stopped to think about it, he would have forgiven his fellow servant the lesser debt in Matthew 18. Or as John states in chapter 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So Christians should be love machines. 
That's who we are. I love this illustration. Birds ought to fly. Fish ought to swim. Christians ought to love. It's what we do. It's in our DNA. It's not something that we try to do. It's something that we do. And it identifies us as part of God's family. Love is evidence of spiritual life. John states in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He's an unbeliever. While this fruit of the spirit never grows to perfect maturity in this lifetime, you should be able to see growth in love when you compare your self-centered life before conversion with your focus since you were saved. It should look different. If you say that you know Christ, but to continue to live for yourself, if you're unwilling to be inconvenienced or sacrifice yourself and your possessions to meet the needs of others, you need to examine whether or not you've truly passed out of death into life. It's not not saying that you don't struggle with it. You can struggle with it, but it still is a part of who you are. If you have tasted God's love in Christ at the cross, the new direction of your life will be to grow in love for others. That's how I know. That's how you'll know that people truly are converted by the person and work of Jesus Christ. In verse 11, John says this. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning. He means from the beginning of your Christian life. You were taught to love one another. It's a basic truth that, should start to, that you should start to learn and practice from day one. God's love flowing through us to one another should so mark the church that it draws a sharp contrast between us and the world. Do you hear me? That should be what identifies us as the people of God. And in the end, this is the, I'm closing with this. In verse 18, it says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Right? But he calls them little children. This is something that really hit me like a ton of bricks. Because one of the ways that we love each other is we love each other like we love our children. There should be this desire to care for them. There should be a desire to feed them and take care of them. We, we feed the word of God. We, we nurture them, right? But this is the thing about children. As you raise your children, you don't raise your children to stay at home. You raise your children to one day go out on their own and be successful, to be able to live a fruitful life, right? That's how we love in the church. See, I don't know who the next preacher is going to be. I don't know who the next evangelist is going to be, the next missionary is going to be, the next church. But I don't know that. So I love and care and feed you and encourage you, and minister to you. And then at a certain point, God may send you to make disciples of the nations. Right? That's our goal. I love this idea 
that we don't know who we're pouring into. And I may never know. Wise man told me one day, he said, Will, you need to be able to plant trees that will give someone else shade. See, I don't know what young man may, raise, I may, may be raised up through this ministry. I may not be blessed by him at all, but he may be a great blessing to the next generation. I won't get that shade, but others will, and God is glorified. So as we come to the table this morning, we celebrate Jesus. We just don't come and, and herd up and grab a cracker and some juice and throw it back. We take a moment to reflect on Jesus, that all of this is all about Jesus. If you didn't see Jesus and what we've been talking about this morning, I didn't do a good job. Because it's not really even about love and hate. It's about Jesus and the work he's doing in your life. And he's just trying to get you to understand that you have an adversary. And that when people come into the body and that they're not real, we can be confident that Jesus will expose it. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so wonderful. We were so undeserving, and yet you poured your love on us. That you have translated us from, if you belong to Christ, from the darkness to light. That now we have the ability to love like you love. And so, Jesus, when we, when we hear messages like this, my prayer is that it is like spiritual miracle grow that will cause us to mature, to care, and to serve. These things we ask and pray in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.